Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49, page 1644. We just had the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they met Jesus, and then they went after meeting Jesus, Jesus disappeared from their sight, and then they ran off back to Jerusalem, and they were there with the other disciples. And so then we begin at verse 36. While they, that is the disciples, were still talking about what they had experienced on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled, what is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay until the city, until you have been clothed with power from on high. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are now just a little over a quarter of the way through 2015. It was only 19 weeks ago, and that's not long, but it was only 19 weeks ago that we wished each other Happy New Year. Remember? Since that time, the wished happiness has become somewhat tempered because quite a few of us have had to shed many a tear as we've had to deal with the death of a family member. So I went through the bulletins printed so far this year, and this is the tip of the iceberg. This is what we came up with. In January, the Luchtendorfs attended the funeral of Larry's mother on January 3rd, which was the same day that Janet Berry lost her mother. On January 9, the Lord took to himself Mary Vanessa's father. In February, the Midlions family mourned the loss of a sister, Jenny Vellinga. That same month, the Bimas and the Vanderplus mourned the loss of an aunt, and Barbara Mann lost her mother. Rudy Reisebol had to deal with the passing away of his grandfather. The Udman family was faced with the death of Harry's father. In March, the DeVores had to deal with the death of Chris's sister, Ann Mulder. And then in April, it hit home to us as a congregation because we were confronted with the passing away of Otto Koch, one of our own. He was followed 10 days later by Jane Malda. Two days after Jane passed away, Kristen Van Leeuwen was stunned by the news of the sudden passing of her father. 
And then later in the month, our former pastor, Harry, had to bid his final farewell to his beloved wife, Clara. The same week, Orist and Cynthia Maxim were confronted with the painful reality of suicide on the part of a nephew. And then yesterday, many of us gathered in Drayton for the funeral of Arlene Heidberg, whose life was cut short at the age of 49. Those are only a few of the stories that I gleaned from the bulletins uh, since the beginning of the year. Those are the only ones we were told about and put that we actually put in the bulletin. And my apologies if I have inadvertently forgotten to mention someone who should also be included this, of this, in this list. I know many others of you have had to deal with death in your families or among friends or among neighbors, stories that did not make our bulletin. And then besides the actual loss of family and friends, we continue to be confronted with the fragility of life as we note the ongoing list of people in the bulletin who are affected by one illness or another, and we know that there are other funerals looming. And all of this is only what affects our immediate community. We haven't even gone beyond to the broader world, and that's a mess. The Happy New Year is only 19 weeks old. I guess it's a really good thing that we can't see into the future because I suspect some of us may not want to go on into that future. Now, whenever we, someone dies, we often talk about the fact that we as Christians have the comfort and the assurance that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and as a result, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So then, in spite of our tears, our pain, our loss, the empty place created by the one who has died and so forth, we as believers are not filled with hopelessness, emptiness, despair, or anything of the sort. Rather, we trust that the Lord is true to his word and that those who believe will be with him for all eternity. We're not filled with despair or hopelessness because we understand and believe that death is not the end of life, as the Bible teaches. We're not filled with despair or hopelessness because we believe in what's called the resurrection of the dead. That's something that you and I can look forward to and expect to happen. In other words, the very body the very physical flesh and bones body that is buried, cremated, or whatever will be raised from the dead. As the Apostle Paul testifies, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because Christ rose from the dead, says the Bible, therefore all Christians will be resurrected. And yesterday at Arlene's funeral, we heard that it was guaranteed. You see, Christians don't mourn as those who have no hope because Christians plan on getting a new body, a far better one than we have now. Now, to a lot of people, that sounds really weird and really strange. The fact that the apostles taught about Jesus' resurrection was strange in many people's ears already. 
And there were those in the New Testament who described the physical resurrection as foolishness. How in the world do you expect people to believe that someone can be certifiably dead and then come to life again with a real body? Come on, that's science fiction. That's something from the paranormal. And to add to the fact that because Jesus rose from the dead, therefore all all believers will get a new body, that's really too much. So this too sounds like foolishness, and yet the Bible clearly teaches that there is good news for the body. Good news for the body. Jesus, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, or as the apostle writes in Philippians 3, we eagerly await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Wow. Can you imagine? Jesus is going to take our lowly bodies, our out-of-shape or in-shape bodies, as the case may be, our acne-scarred bodies, our hearing-impaired, disabled and malformed, limited-in-some-way bodies, and transform them into something glorious. Jesus is going to take our sin-filled bodies and make them pure, as one writer put it, If you are sick, you will be radiantly healthy. If you are handicapped or disabled, you'll be excitedly whole. If you are clumsy, you'll be remarkably agile. If you are feeble, you'll be surprisingly strong. If you are disfigured, you'll be blissfully beautiful. And if you are aged, you'll be vibrantly young. Now you say, ah. But that's what we confess in the Apostles' Creed when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Ours is not going to be some spiritual rising from the dead or some mere soul rising or merely a resuscitation of our corpse like what happened to Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son or Jairus' daughter. Those folks were resuscitated, but later on they died again. No, when we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body, we believe that there will be a physical coming to life again. Nonetheless, it will be with glorified bodies. And this is something the Bible tells us will take place at the coming again of Jesus. Now, mind you all, this was something that was totally strange to the Greeks of Paul's day. That was a message with which they could not have been able to identify. And the reason they could not have connected with such a message was because for many Greek pagans... The body was seen merely as the prison house of the soul. Death meant deliverance from a prison house. Francis of Assisi also held this old view of the body, calling it my brother donkey. And when Francis died, he said, I'm glad to put off this mantle of sin. And he considered the physical part of man only as a necessary evil. 
and death was a wonderful escape from that which had encased a person in his life. But the Bible doesn't view the body as the prison house of the soul or even as a necessary evil. On the contrary, the Bible is very pro-body. You only need to read such passages as the Song of Solomon, which celebrate the body and physical love. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15, that talks about the resurrection of the body. And rather than being something evil and vile and something to discard as a, as a dirty rag, the Bible views the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6. And certainly as we live in our bodies now, we're all too aware that our bodies are affected by sin. And because we live in a fallen world, we're exposed on a regular basis to, to weakness and to suffering and to sickness and to ugliness and to pollution and to death and all such sorts of things. And because we live in a fallen world, our whole selves, including our bodies, are flawed. Nonetheless, the Lord God still loves our bodies. He created us physical beings. And if you may remember, once he saw Adam and Eve and all of creation, he said, it's excellent. The Bible has a very high view of the body in that sense. It's God's workmanship. Psalm 139 pictures the Lord as knitting us together in our mother's womb. And it would appear to be the desire of the Lord to knit a new body for everyone, to put every one of his children in a flawless body. Look at what the Catechism teaches concerning the resurrection. I don't know if, you, if these words struck you when you actually read them. Sometimes we, we've read them so often they don't really hit us, but think about it for a minute. How does the resurrection comfort you? Not only my soul will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but even my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Jesus did not come only to save souls. Our flesh is included in that too. And while some may not care very much as to what happens to them after they die, the Bible does in the sense that it's not finished with us yet. For one day, that is on the day that Jesus comes again in all his glory, the resurrection will take place and all who believe will experience perfection in their bodies. But then someone may ask, as 1 Corinthians 15 does, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Those are the questions the apostle asked, anticipating what would be on people's minds as he discussed the whole matter of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Tough questions to answer. They were for the apostle as well. And yet, while it's hard for us to understand what a transformation from our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, as mentioned in Philippians 3, is like, Nonetheless, we have some clues from when Jesus arose from the dead and appeared to his disciples. Prior to his death, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was a flesh and blood person, human in every way, except that he didn't sin. So when Jesus was on the cross, he bled. It hurt. If you had punched Jesus when he was walking around in Israel, he would have probably reeled and maybe fallen over. 
He was a real flesh and blood human person. And now the point of the gospel writer is not that Jesus is so different and able to do all sorts of unusual and spectacular things like suddenly appear in a room. But the, the point of verse 42 of Luke 24 is that Jesus' body after the resurrection was significantly the same as that of his disciples. And Jesus deliberately conducted himself in such a way that it would be clear to his disciples that he was for real. Not some hologram, not some ghost, not some apparition, but real. And Jesus did that by conducting, as it were, two experiments. First, he said, as you note in verse 39, he invited his disciples to touch him. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. And he even challenges. He said, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And even after touching him and seeing him and hearing him, hmm, not sure if he's for real or not. So then Jesus asked them, while they were questioning his reality, Jesus asked them, for something to eat. In verse 42 records, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. You say, big deal. Well, that little detail made a great announcement to the disciples and to us that Jesus' body was to a significant degree similar to the bodies that you and I have. This is the clincher. Jesus was for real, physical, solid, not a ghost. There is no question that Jesus' body after the resurrection was different than before his death. The latter body, as the disciples experienced it, had been touched by the almighty recreative power of the living God. It had been glorified. And Jesus is now the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, as we read in Philippians 3, 21, my flesh will be made like Christ's glorious body. It's an amazing truth. The fact that you and I will spend eternity not just floating around somewhere on some clouds in some wild blue yonder, eating Philadelphia cream cheese and all that nonsense, but the fact that you and I will spend eternity in an actual, glorified, solid, flawless, sinless, perfect, real, earthy body is of great comfort to the believer. And see, it makes the Christian faith so much more tangible. Not only that, but it tells us that God values us precisely for who we are, completely, holy, as people. He values us enough to fully restore all of us. And our bodies are not just some discarded as old dish rag. Our bodies, our bodies are part and parcel of the recreation that Jesus is carrying out as all things are going to be made new. Christianity is not merely involved with the spirit world and the great by and by and all that fluffy nonsense. Christianity is real. 
and it's very earthy, and it's very physical. And all of this has some very practical implications for us even now. For since our bodies are of value to the Lord, our bodies ought to be cared for as such, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, as God's house in which he delights to dwell. We're all, you know, we talk about this as a church, but this is just a building of brick and stone. We are the church together. We're all living stones in the church that God is building. And so we're called upon, very practically speaking, to not misuse our bodies in any way, whether that be sexually or with foreign substances or whatever. Our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. Body and soul, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, if we know that we belong to him, if we know and understand that one day our bodies will be raised gloriously like Jesus' glorious body, then not only are we to be free from abusing them, but perhaps we also ought to be free from clinging to them at all costs. That's hard, of course, because generally speaking, we love life and do not want to die, but sometimes there seems to be such a desperation on people's part to hang on to their bodies no matter what. And so all sorts of measures are taken to keep young and to not grow old. And the fountain of youth is something that people will spend millions on to obtain. And many others facing death will resort to all sorts of incredible, desperate measures from high-risk surgeries to highly experimental and untested drugs in a bar-no-expense campaign to keep their bodies alive. It was bigger some time ago, but there are those who even will have their bodies frozen so that they can come back to life once a cure has been found for their particular disease because death is horrid. But the gospel's approach is never one of, I'm going to beat this illness at all costs because just around the corner, so to speak, is a brand new glorious body waiting for us, our own transformed now, that doesn't mean that medical technology ought not to be used because, well, I'm going to get a new body. Of course not. Medical technology has been given to us as a gift from God's hand, and he expects us to use it. But there's that wonderful little line in the Bible, all things in moderation. An absolute clinging to life at all costs is a basic denial of the fact that there is a whole lot more to life than what we see now. Death is not the end. Oh, it may seem like it for us here, but that's not the teaching of God's holy word. For the believer, death, death marks a new step in, one, in life. As one person put it, quote, death is slipping on the new body, the one we could only dream about as we page through the fashion magazines or watch gymnasts at play. But you know, that new body will be even better than the bodies of the fashion models or the bodies of the athletes because even their bodies are flawed and sin-filled. I believe in the resurrection of the body. You said that this morning. And you recited 
the words of Lord's Day 22. A new body awaits us indeed, and the prototype is the one in which Jesus is living. You could touch him, and he ate fish. What a comfort. What a Lord. What a gospel. Amen.